Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Jamila Robinson. In today's episode, we'll talk to Jamila about her predictions for the food world in 2022, her picks for the best new food content, and we're here, Jamila's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to our first show of 2022. It's great to have you with us to kick off the 13th season of Inside Julia's Kitchen. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We like to devote the first episode of a new year and new season to forecasting, covering predictions of what's to come and recommendations about who we should be learning and hearing from. This comes directly from Julia. As a lifelong learner and teacher, Julia loved to be in the know about the latest trends, new gadgets, and the people, including chefs, with the most interesting new ideas. Julia said, You learn about great food by finding the best there is, whether simple or luxurious. Then you savor it, analyze it, and discuss it with your companions, and you compare it with other experiences. Like Julia, we rely on food writers and restaurant critics to do a lot of that sifting for us. Someone who's her finger on the pulse of today's food world is journalist Jamila Robinson. We met Jamila through her relationship with our 2021 Julia Child Award recipient, Tony Tipton Martin, who you can learn more about in episodes 139 and 69. Jamila was one of the mentees Tony selected to speak during the Julia Child Award presentation ceremony at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Jamila, like her mentor Tony was, is a food editor at a major American newspaper. As the assistant managing editor for food at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Jamila oversees a team of reporters and its food-related content. She was previously an editorial director at Atlantic Media, a senior content strategist for the USA Today Network, where she managed editorial strategy for USA Today's wine and food experience. And before that, she led the features and entertainment team as a senior editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Beyond her editorial work, Jamila chairs the James Beard Foundation Journalism Committee, which organizes its journalism honors. She's also the North American Academy Chair of the world's 50 best restaurants. In addition to being an avid traveler, she enjoys coaching figure skating in her free time. She joins us today, and she brought her crystal ball, 
to talk about when we, what we can expect from the food world in 2022 and share her recommendations about new voices you want to be hearing from. Welcome to the podcast, Jamila. Oh, Todd, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It is such an honor and a thrill to be on this podcast and to be in the light of Julia Child. So oh, thrilling. That- and even even if indirectly through just me, but thank you for that. And uh, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what your thoughts are. It's been quite a last uh, year and and what. So let's start with your outlook for 2022. What what do you think are let's let's think about the positive first. Like what new or continuing trends are you anticipating in the year? Well, gosh, I actually think that this is going to be an exciting year because we've learned so much over the past two years of the pandemic. We've been able to see how restaurants and food culture are resilient and the ways that we have had to look at um, the culinary arts from a different lens and from a more inclusive lens. And I think you're going to continue to see that. I think you're going to see some of the changes that you've seen at major media companies, some people like Tammy Teclamarian going to The New Yorker to be the dining uh, critic. And you're going to see lots more people moving to things like Substack and newsletters and um, and some of uh, the food writers who have been around for a really long time are moving into other entities. I'm thinking about people like Stephen Satterfield starting another network and, and doing a second season of High on the Hog. You're going to be seeing so many people being able to bring their cultural stories and their cultural lens to um, to the culinary arts in the way that we have never really seen before. I think you're going to see more exploration in terms of how people think about their regional cooking, how people think about their cultural backgrounds. One of the things I'm excited about is seeing how restaurants are playing with um, amalgamations of culture. It makes me think about a restaurant called Anju in Washington, D.C. that is a new Korean restaurant that is uh, that has a Black Puerto Rican chef who uses his background from a military family. And in, in that influence comes out in his cooking and it makes it new Korean. And I think that is such an interesting a wave that we're going to continue to see in restaurants, lots of culture, a lot of um, big stories. Um, And I think another thing you're going to see is a real rallying around restaurants, especially neighborhood restaurants, the fast casual, the neighborhood spots that really anchor neighborhoods. I think you're going to continue to see a lot of that. I think you're also going to see in fine dining a real shift Um, towards plant-forward and plant-based cooking. Um, I think that is probably one of the most important, if not the most important trend, is going to be that plant-forward and plant-based cooking. It's It's a driving force in terms of how people want to eat, how they want to explore. Um, people who are are thinking about climate change or concerned about the environment are changing the way they eat. And then you're seeing that come through in restaurants and being 
and thinking about not only the sustainability of a restaurant, but also the creativity. And I'm thinking about places like 11 Madison Park and the team that's led by Daniel Home and restaurants like Geranium in Copenhagen that have decided to take meat and fish off the menus in order to drive, not to think about food and not to think about meat and fish, but to think about what is the creativity that they can explore as chefs. So I think you're going to continue to see that. Um, And that's a real distinction from vegan restaurants, this idea of what is plant-based and how does that creativity come through and how can we start to eat more plants and incorporate more plants into our diets? Well, I love how hopeful and optimistic that that whole portrait was. And it, it I think, really reflects also some of the silver linings that have come out of what has been a period of difficulty and 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 strife. So I would say that was quite a, a glass half, um, half full prediction. <laughs> well, we have to be optimistic, yes. And it's not all. And the realism around that is we're going to see a lot of energy around restaurants, but I also think you're going to see a lot of higher prices. Yeah, I was going to ask you because I feel like there's still a bit of a reckoning to come with restaurant survival, but I think some of what you pointed out too is it's almost like the people who were either already reorganizing or revamping or just starting into the pandemic had sort of an advantage because they could build their model around the current circumstances rather than having to adapt an old model that was barely working. I think that's so true. And I think what we're seeing from a lot of restaurants, especially in local independent restaurants, is this idea that that not only was the system that they were under not sustainable, not working, um, for not only the restaurateur, but also for service and for also for the customer, that looking at, well, we need a new system. We need new ways to define why a restaurant matters, what a restaurant should cost, how do we include service? And I think that is a real change. And so I think as journalists, we have to, what a trend that you're going to see from us is educating the consumer about why, um, why their three course meal is probably going to cost more, how the how issues with the supply chain are going to in, impact not only the groceries and the recipes you make, but also what you're going to see in your local restaurants. And that if we are going to have a system that is um, that has more equity and it has more sustainability, it's probably going to come at a higher cost. Yeah. And I suppose that 2022, would you predict is more of a year of all of that still shaking out than necessarily the clarity of what the future of, of, different restaurant types is in just one year's time? I think it's going to be constantly changing. It's a constantly evolving process. There was a lot of hopefulness, I think, that came from about, I would say, July, August, after a lot of people had been vaccinated. And there was this real excitement that came about uh, that was happening in restaurants. And you started to see people traveling and going to places again and excited about going to places that had been on their list for months or years. And then um, the Omicron variant creating sort of a de facto lockdown in some ways, and that being um, r- rippling through um, restaurants and kitchens once again and through the customer base. So 
I think that is going to be constantly evolving. It's really hard to say this is what the movement is going to be because almost anything can impact um, you know, what the future is. So I think a lot of us who are adjacent to food culture are starting to see this constant wave as the nor- as normalcy. We're constantly waiting for you know, what's going to happen next. And so it's really difficult to get comfortable and say, this is exactly what I predict for the future. It's going to be a constantly evolving and moving target. Yeah. You mentioned sort of the cost. And I feel like um, in the our seasons last year, one of the recurring um, refrains from chefs, like we talked to Nina Compton in New Orleans, and we talked to Nancy Oaks in San Francisco, um, two that stand out and commenting on this is that their expectation is that there's kind of going to be this polarization emerging between kind of new fun ideas that people have innovated at the fast casual or even takeaway end of the spectrum and then fine dining. But the middle ground that people were so used to spending a reasonable amount of money and getting really great value and great food, that that kind of sector of the restaurant business is the hardest to sustain and maybe the first one to sort of start disappearing. Is that your sense too? Or did you have a slightly more optimistic view of that? I have a little bit more optimistic view. (laughs) I would say one of the most important trends that we started to see emerging last year was the tasting menu. And this was a way for restaurants to guarantee revenue, um, have a predictable um, a predictable set of courses. They knew exactly what they needed to order. And it allowed a restaurant like Friday, Saturday, Sunday to survive. And yes, it is a little bit um, a little bit more exclusive, a tasting menu that is maybe $140, $130 as opposed to the $300 you're going to spend at some of the higher end fine dining places in California or New York or even Atlanta. So being able to shape a menu at a restaurant like Irwin's in Philadelphia, where the the menu is going to cost about $60, it's probably going to be a little bit more predictable. And that's a lot, a lot of, a lot of restaurants to survive. You have that experience Um, of having three or four courses, and it's much more predictable. And I think that is an optimistic way of us to look at that middle, that middle sector and not necessarily the takeaway or the, or fine dining. Well, that's great to hear. And actually, now that you say that, that is consistent. Yours was sort of a clearer framing of it than when chefs talk about what their plan is, because they're usually only talking about in the context of their restaurant. But we did have similar feedback. And what I'm struck by is actually, interestingly enough, it's quite a European model. You know, the set menus that are not fine dining, elaborate tasting menus have been very common in places like France and Italy and England. Um the countries I'm more familiar with. And part of that is related to the same thing costs. Like, you know, people have traveled and eaten out in Europe. You know, most restaurants, they don't have nearly the levels of staffing that American restaurants tend to. And some of that is economics. It costs a lot more to employ people in European countries. So I, I, I don't know if you see that too, but it's sort of an interesting alignment or realignment? Absolutely. I think it's something as somebody who likes to travel and I travel a lot and I eat in a lot of restaurants, it's actually as a consumer, very helpful when I know, okay, I'm going to get duck confit 
uh, a lemon tart and a glass of wine for 30 euros or whatever it is, that is an easier way for me to make decisions. And I know that the chef is only going to put out the things that she can make really well. And, and that I think is something that also you're seeing in pop-ups, uh, that pop-up trend of being able to set a menu, you know, exactly what you're going to have. And there isn't a lot of, if you get to experience the chef's creativity, how they mix ingredients, how they think about the flavors that come together and how they put together a meal. It actually is something that excites me quite a bit. It helps me make decisions. I want to sit down and have that experience of hospitality. And it really speaks to that uh, European, uh, European model, but also you see that in Latin countries, you see that in Mexico, you see it in Brazil as well, where you know exactly what you're, what you're going to get. You know, Americans, it is, it is such a sign of Americans that we get to pick what's on the menu. But one of my favorite places um, is a pizza shop in um, in Atlanta where the chef owner says, you get your pizza my way. <laughs> um, there aren't a lot of changes. And, oh, I want to substitute. It is This is the best thing that I can make for you. And, and it creates for me a really exciting experience. No, it, it it is true. Well, I think there's been also conversations going right about the American adage of the customers always right, that there's particularly a younger generation where people are like, no, not true. Certainly not true with bad behavior. Absolutely. So, and I think that there's a probably maybe the pendulum might be swinging too far the other direction, but I think it's a good direction to go. And I think we'll we'll just have to see how it goes up against the you know 400 dietary requirements of of, of the population. When you're like, this is the menu, take it or leave it. Oh, I think that there's in it, there has been a real shift as someone who has food allergies of the accommodation that restaurants make. And that is a factor of, of hospitality that I find extraordinarily beautiful. And, and, it's, and it's also a testament to technology that restaurants are able to keep track of what the customer's needs are and they can address that. And so I think when we, as consumers, when we think about what the cost should be, the way that they accommodate us in those ways, I find very beautiful and, um, and something that we should paying attention to. No, I think you're right. And there's definitely very interesting ways to to do it. And the places that are good at hospitality understand, like, I'm allergic to pine nuts. I would love to be able to eat them, but I would also go into anaphylactic shock, which I'm sure the restaurant does not want. And so <laughs> that's a mutual thing. And presumably with these tasting menus, if you're trying to reach a diverse audience, then you would have to have in your back pocket how something has a gluten-free option or a vegan option or um, or you just go all vegan and then you're covered. <laughs> you're covered. You're covered. I think I was trying to, I was asking some guest, I was like, we were talking about the etiquette on like um, going to dinner parties and whether the host really does need to cater to every dietary thing or people need to work around it. I was talking to Deborah Madison, actually, the 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 vegetable queen. And um, she was like, I don't expect that. And I said, it is true that nobody who only likes meat gets to go and demand that the, <laughs> the vegan host serve them a steak. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, what I think is so interesting, I think as a host, we have to be aware of um, of, of how do we welcome people into our homes and, and having some options for people to, um, 
to enjoy that experience. Um, I'm allergic to a lot of tree nuts, pine nuts being one of them. <laughs> um, uh, and I have a, I have a life threatening peanut allergy. And I found that when we make people aware of those things that they are incredibly accommodating. And I've also found that people who are vegan or vegetarian, vegetarian are actually really good at, at making things as beautiful and, um, um, uh, because people want you to have a really good experience, especially if they're welcoming you into their home or to their restaurant. And it gives, I think, everybody an opportunity to try new things and to try other ways of, of eating. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Always the optimist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I feel for you too, because I like the pine nut thing is really, you know, I wish I could eat them. And I'm lucky that I can eat other nuts. But actually, what happens to me often is they get people, the restaurants are so fearful when they care, they're so fearful that they're like, oh, we've given you a completely nut free menu. And I'm like, well, actually, I would have eaten the other dishes. With <laughs> it's so true. That happens to me a lot. Um, and especially, and, but I've also had, um, I've also had uh, chefs come and say, I'm sorry. Um, peanuts are just in the kitchen and they're everywhere. And we don't, we want you to be happy. We want you to feel good. And I appreciate that too. I appreciate that clarity. Um, but I also think that so many restaurateurs are making the efforts to have a gluten-free option, to have a plant-based option and for, and to be making those options extraordinarily delicious. That is, you know, we've, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm very excited about because there no longer are the days where you just get, you know, some mushrooms and some vegetables, or they just lift the fish off the main course. And there you go. There is something that they're doing that is extraordinarily delicious, extraordinarily um, uh, beautiful that everybody could experience. So it makes it very exciting about being able to think about how, you know, what, it, what is needed and also the innovation that comes from thinking about what happens when you take something away. Yeah, no. And I like, we had chef Amanda Cohen of, of dirt candy in, in New York on, and she was saying, you know, she's not, she's seeing what she can do to eke every amount of flavor and taste and wow you with only using vegetables and that the amount of talent and technique and precision that that takes. And like you said, with Daniel Helm at, at 11 Madison Park, there's also the sort of tables of return and it being like other and on the side and an afterthought versus being very much at the forefront of chefs thinking of, of what they can demonstrate in terms of their talent and innovation and taste to, to diners. I had, um, I went to Atomics in New York and I'm still thinking about this beautiful radish. <laughs> it was the most gorgeous radish that had turned into this beautiful flower and had these little specks of herbs that just were on every single corner that um, the staff had turned. And it, and it was like art on a plate. And of course, it was glorious to eat. But I think that that is something that we can all, that's something that we can all absorb in ways that how we present um, food in our own lives. Can you make this more beautiful? Can you make it more interesting? Can you learn a new skill? Um, that's something that I always think about in my own kitchen is, can I make this even more special? Can I, I love what Amanda Cohen said about ex extracting as much flavor out of whatever it is, I think is so exciting. 
Yeah, no, and I think that in particular are things that really chefs can demonstrate to you and that you probably don't have the time or the prep staff to do it at home. But you, like you said, you can take an inkling of that idea and maybe your radish isn't as beautiful, but you're like, you know what, I'm going to pickle my own radishes at home and because I saw that beautifully presented one. So I love, yeah, I like that. I like that take of, you know, thinking about the beauty that we can extract at home in the coming year. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more about what you should be looking for and reading about in 2022 with Jamila Robinson. Stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, Hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sir was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Jamila Robinson, the food editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, about her predictions for 2022 and the voices we should want to and be learning from in the coming year. So, Before we talk about your specific recommendations, I wanted to acknowledge, because I feel at the end of a fire hose a lot with, there is so much content out there. There's so much great content out there. There's, as you you mentioned at the top of the show, this kind of expanding range of voices and storytellers and creators. So, but it's a lot in a world where our phones are pinging us all the time. Do you have any hacks of like, how do you keep up with this massive barrage? Oh my gosh, it does feel like a constant fire hose. There is so much to keep up with. I sift through Instagram and Twitter. That's where I live. Um, And, you know, some of the most interesting content is actually being produced in newsletters. And so I use a lot of newsletters to help me sift through some of the very, very dynamic food writing that is happening. I, but I do love Instagram and TikTok. TikTok is fascinating to me for, because it has this entertainment um, piece of it. And so I like to sift through how people are cooking um, on TikTok and sort of these, these, small stories that they're telling on TikTok about food. Um, Instagram, because a lot of people don't have time to update their websites to find out what people are doing or what they have on the horizon. Instagram is for that. And of course, Twitter is, you know, is, is the constant barrage. But I really like to think about um, all of the newsletters that are either creating or curating extraordinary food writing content. And a lot of writers, as, as I mentioned from the top, a lot of writers are actually moving to newsletters and moving to Substack. And I find that to be a, an easier way to sift through a lot. 
But I also love to slow down and read magazines. And there are so many books that are on the horizon. Um, I, I, I keep adding more audiobooks to my list, um, because I have a stack of cookbooks in my, um, and they have moved to my living room and outside of the kitchen. Um, and there are so many more that are coming. So I am really looking for experts to help me figure out what are, what are the books that I absolutely have to have. I mean, one of the things that we try to do at the Philadelphia Inquirer is uh, with cookbooks to tell you the, the books that we love to cook from. There are some books that you, cookbooks that you just might want to have in your canon or in your library, but aren't necessarily the books that you want to get dirty um, because you want them on the coffee table. We want to help people sift through that information, but it is a lot. Um, and, and that's actually very exciting because it means that there are so many more stories to be told. You know, there are going to be books by Von Diaz and Kwame Awachi and, um, and so many kinds of, um, of people from different backgrounds with memoirs and cookbooks and dining and travel. So we have all of these topics and it's going to be a lot for people to sift through, but, um, but that is it. But it, it's it's an it's an exciting problem to have, um, because that means that more voices it has become more expansive, and that's exciting to me. So, with all of those great thoughts, Jamila, about using newsletters, which I also do as a great hack for finding both covering a lot of stuff and then linking to things that you then want to read more in depth and having other people curate it. Are there any ones that you feel, I know they might all feel like children that you don't want to name a favorite one, but are there any ones either that you rely on that you really like and recommend and and call out, or maybe even people who are are working on new ones that you want to give a shout out to? Sure. I love um, Secret Breakfast. Um, It's one of my favorite newsletters. And there's a newsletter called um, Family Meal, which is more industry focus. Um, Secret Breakfast you know, gives you all of this insight. Um, but there are so many great newsletters out there. And it, it is kind of hard to pick a favorite because you have so much incredible writing. And the other thing is because I chair the James Beard Foundation, <laughs> um, uh, journalism committee and newsletters are one of our categories this year. It does feel like a bit of favoritism if I say, oh, this one is my favorite and this one is, is not my favorite. So I don't want to make it seem as if I'm putting my fingers on the scale. Um, but I, um, but I think that it is, um, some of the most interesting writing. And I think, uh, and I'm calling out some, um, um, some newsletters in particular that are not necessarily U.S. based. There are some U.K. based um, newsletters that I think are um, that I think are actually um, showing how global um, the culinary arts and the food system and how food writing really isn't just centered in North America but is across the globe. And I think that that is makes it a very exciting um, and that makes it a very interesting way of sifting through some of the the content that's out there. So you mentioned um, that you do like Substack, which um, maybe um, because it's still pretty new. And so maybe you could just give us a little primer on, you know, define what Substack is and how people use it and how uh, kind of what you're seeing in Substack in the food world. One of the things I really like about Substack is that it allows for subscriptions and and it's a way for 
audiences to interact directly with the writer. They can have this great experience that's right in their inbox and talk right to that writer. Um, and, And it gives some idea of what the audiences are looking for and the ways that the writer can shape that content. Um, subscriptions, I think, are are extraordinarily important. If from the consumer side, it shows that you value the content that we're creating. So that makes it really important for people to subscribe, to click that button um, and pay writers directly. And I think that that makes it um it makes it an important revenue driver um, for the writer, and it also makes it a lot more personal experience. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you see Substack enabling as sort of, I don't know if it's type of journalism or avenues that the 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 stories that you, maybe for people who don't realize who haven't worked in a journalistic or editorial environment that editors have a lot of say so because just because a journalist has an idea, if an editor doesn't approve it or doesn't think it's either on trend or what the readership is looking for might be a great idea, but it's not going to be get to print. And Substack obviously enables the writer, the journalist themselves to make that decision. Right. I mean, it, well, ab- absolutely. And it, it does do exactly that. It, it allows for the, um, to the writer to get um, stories or ideas out into the universe that, and the other thing about the media landscape is that it seems really expansive because there are so many new voices, but it's actually contracting. You know, there are fewer publications that have like the Philadelphia Inquirer that have a standalone food section where we can afford to pay writers for their essays and for recipes. That's actually um, becoming more rare. And so this is, so Substack ends up being a way for people to continue to, um, to drive audience, to think about topics that may not necessarily be of a, of a, it may not be at the audience that, um, for example, Alicia Kennedy writes a lot about um, um, about vegetarian issues, um, but there may only be room for a story like that in one or two publications this year. And that allows for the writer to continue to expand their critical voice um, and to... And, and to have some impact in the world and impact on the industry in ways that they find compelling. Um, you know, one of my favorite newsletters is um, is Indigestion. I think the cost is maybe, you know, 20 or $30 a year. And that is um, a small price to pay for all of the all of the content that they're creating, they're actually drawing on new writers and they are, they are actually creating a news organization within the newsletter. And I think that that is something that is, um, you know, from the media landscape that is trending in such a way that even a lot of publications that have newsletters, they're using their newsletters in different ways. Um, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer has the newsletter Let's Eat, and we use that as a way to break news. Um, and so Substack is a way for, you know, building audience and subscriptions for individuals and smaller companies, and they are becoming media organizations, whereas the mainstream media organizations are using newsletters to really curate their content, in our case, break news. Um, in uh, the New York Times, this case, it is to uh, share recipes and share perspectives. And that is um, that kind of engagement coming right to your inbox speaks to the way that we as consumers are experiencing content. And it gives us something extraordinarily new um, and personal as well. 
And any you, I want to talk about sort of new and upcoming voices, as, as you mentioned a little bit in some of these specific newsletters. But are there either cookbooks that you know are in the works from writers that you really admire, or interested, or are following? Or did you also find during the pandemic you were recommending old cookbooks that are evergreen that you really like to people because you just know they're reliable? It's a little bit of both. Um, some of my favorite cookbooks this year um, were some books that showed up on some of the lists, but not all of the lists. I love books that really take you to another place. Um, so I'm thinking about um, Rain Cassis's book, A Palestinian Table, um, which has this extraordinary storytelling, um, incredible imagery, but really helps you understand that food from that perspective. Um, and one of my favorite cookbooks, I happen to love Middle Eastern food because I grew up in Detroit, um, is a, a book called... <laughs> 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 which which is showing your younger age because that's not usually it, it's a more modern association with Detroit, but I, but I I, I get you. <laughs> I have my age and myself there <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> yes, I'm sure a lot of older people from Detroit are like, what? Yeah, so the, you know, a lot of Mediterranean and Greek um, food is is as much of Detroit culture um, as the Coney Island, and so I love um, the book by Bavel, a restaurant in. Um, in Los Angeles that is considered new Middle Eastern. Um, some of the books that I'm excited about, um, I mentioned before is Kwame Awachi's book, um, My America, which is going to be his story of, and, uh, and a story that we don't usually see a lot of, especially um, books from black chefs come out of Southern foodways. Um, and he's showing his experience of not necessarily having um, a lot of Southern food, but having more Caribbean and New Orleans influences on his table and what that has meant for how it shaped his culinary career and how he likes to cook and the recipes that he's wanted to develop. Um, I think that those kind, more of those kinds of books where you see the um, nuance and complexity of experiences. Um, Von Diaz's book um, that I believe is going to be called Las Islas is, is going to be this exploration of the diaspora of Latin America and how that has informed her entire family. So I think that we're going to see so many more books like that that really traverse the American experience. Um, and I want to make sure that that is something that um, is, is well understood that because we have a lot of um, a lot of um, there are a lot of books coming out of the immigrant experience. But I think what is so interesting are the books that explore the American experience with those cultural touchstones. So seeing how, you know, someone who might be second or third or fourth generation, how they cook and how they've used those influences from their heritage to tell a very American story um, is something that I think is very interesting um, that we're going to see from a lot of books. 
And just expanding on that, I was curious, you know, I know in in different things that you've said and written about before that you think in terms of facilitating societal change from a writer, editorial, storyteller perspective, it's the more voices and the more stories and the wider that range that I think those were great examples of and kind of veering away from the top 10 of this or that. And I was just curious, you kind of touched upon it in the cookbook realm, but are there also some writers or storytelling or people that you're hoping to hear from or that you'll be able to cover or that others will cover in 2022? I think that there are going to be a lot of memoirs that are going to be coming out. Some of them are, are we probably won't see until um, 2022 and 2023, um, the end of 2022 and maybe the beginning of 2023. I'm looking forward to hearing from Asai Endelin, um, who is one of, I would say, one of the preeminent food writers um, and has been such an incredible, she's a James Beard Award winner and um, and has been a voice for change. I'm looking forward to her memoir. I'm looking forward to hearing from regular people um, about their food stories. Um, I think that there will be you know, there are always the chef's memoirs, but I really love, um, I love reading um, books from people about their culinary journeys that aren't necessarily um, predictable. And I think that's one of the books that I'm really looking for. That's one of the writers that I'm really looking forward to hearing from. Um, I know she has a, a memoir coming out. I think it's in 20, 2023. Um, you know, you never want to ask, when is your book coming out? <laughs> well, and, and with the state of publishing these days, even if they intended for autumn with, if it gets stuck on a boat coming from China or Hong Kong, then it might be 2023. I, I'm also looking forward to the cookbook from Kushbusha. Um, mm. which I think is going, she's the restaurant editor at Food and Wine Magazine. And she's going to be writing a book about um, about being Indian American and um, and the recipes that come out of those the, that culinary canon. And, um, and I'm really excited to, she's an incredible writer. Um, and I think it speaks to the changes within the publishing industry that are moving towards that um, very expansive, beautiful, deliberate storytelling um, wrapped around the recipes and how the recipes really influences the storytelling is something I'm really looking forward to. Well, I love this portrait that you, you've you painted of the voices and the stories, because I think that that, particularly in the conversations, the difficult conversations and stressful sort of divisional conversations that have happened in the last two years, is a reminder that what is American and the American story is is basically constantly evolving. And as a nation of immigrants, it always has been. So now I think people who are middle-aged accept that Italian food or Italian-American food is, you know, just part of who we are as Americans and everyone eats it and all of that. But there was a time more than 100 years ago when that was not the case and it was foreign food and it was weird and, you know, only certain ethnic people in New Jersey ate that. And I think it's really helpful to be reminded of how the melting pot means that it's ever changing and ever evolving. And that's exciting. It really is. And, you know, I always, I, I always bristle a little bit at the, the idea of the melting pot um, because it is that idea that something is, is being boiled away. And when food is the thing, the last thing that people lose, 
um, the idea of it boiling away is, has always um, made me a, a little bit, um, and it makes the hair on my neck stand up a little bit, um, to be honest. But when I think about the, all the, the dishes and the things that we bring from our backgrounds and, um, and how we present that to each other and the rest of the world, you know, does tell a, a does tell a story that, you know, there's a restaurant I love in California that is, um, Japanese inspired, but when I eat there, I feel like it's a California restaurant. It tastes like Santa Barbara to me. And, and my taste memories are, are just as valid and just as important as people who grew up in the South or grew up on the East Coast or grew up um, elsewhere. So when I think about those stories being illuminated and we can start to think about what do we call American and what and, and who gets to be that, um, I think about a lot of restaurants and a lot of cooking that I like that is really new American. Um, if, if it is, if it's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit Korean and a little bit um, Southern is, you know, what are those things? It's probably new American. And I think that we have an opportunity to reframe what we call that and being sure that people of all backgrounds are included in that canon and included in that language. Um, I think sometimes we flatten, um, we flatten so much of the food that we consume by putting, by trying to categorize it in a way that um, strips its of its um, uh, identity. Fair enough. Well, yeah. uh, yes, no, I think I meant melting pot in the best way, but I think <laughs> that's a very good point. And I'm going to look to you, Jamila, for in 2022, the replacement food analogy for what, yes, used to be very much about assimilation, which was we're going to mix everyone together and they'll all be the same. And I think you're pointing out that that isn't really the value that we're necessarily going for or should buy idealized versus the um, we're all having variations together, coexisting peacefully with new discoveries and new inventions out of that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think, you know, of the conversations that have come out of the last two years of the planet pandemic, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the so-called reckoning, is the acknowledgement that we don't call things you know, language, I think, is so essential to being to to how we have conversations about food, how we have conversations about politics, the economy, what have what have you. But if we can reframe the kind of language and be more inclusive or or think about how people will receive the information that we're putting out, then I think that our tables do become more representative, more equitable, more innovative, more sustainable. Um, by making that small adjustment in how we, um, you know, what we what we say about food, and 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 stopping and pausing, and saying, um, are 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 these the kind, you know, what do we mean? But when we say melting pot, uh, melting pot for whom, and a melting pot of what? Is it a melting pot like feijoada, or is it a melting pot that erases the cultures and the hands that prepare those dishes? Well, I'm looking forward to a 2022 of much more intentionality. So thank you very much for that. 
After the break, we're going to hear Jamila's own Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, tweet us. Let us know what your 2022 replacement for the melting pot is. And um, we'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Jamila, what's your Julia moment? Well, you know, I did not watch Julia Child. Um, I'm a little bit too young (laughs) for Julia Child. And, um, And I grew up in Michigan and watched a lot of Canadian television. So I really didn't have a relationship with Julia Child until I was well into my 20s. And I got my first Julia Child book and I have it here um, with me. And it is from Julia's Kitchen. And I found it in um, just a, a bookstore and it's got a discount sticker. And I realized that I didn't have a book by Julia Child. And even though I um, was uh, a design editor for the food section at the time, I didn't have a Julia Child book, and so I bought one. And it's tattered now, and um, and some of the pages are slipping out because I've used it so much. But one of the things that I love about this book and um, and Julia Child's writing um, is the way that she wrote recipes in this very um, diligent and explanatory way. Every head note is telling you not only what you're cooking, but why you are using these techniques. Um, Fries need two frying, she says. Um, One to dry and one to crisp. So it's not just, okay, here's how you make fries. (laughs) But here's why you are doing these techniques. And it reminded me a lot of how my grandmother talked about recipes and why, okay, we have, I'm going to teach you to make custard. And, um, and this is why it needs to slide off the back of the spoon, which is an, an instruction in the Julia Child book. Um, uh, the pastry should hold its shape when lifted. If it cannot form, it will not bake properly. And that is something that I use when I'm writing recipes. I think about these kinds of steps whenever I have to write or edit recipes. Does it demystify something? It's For me, it's not enough just to tell people, here are the steps, here's the ingredients, but here's why you need to keep that pastry cold. This is the science that's going to happen. And so much of that is, is in all of GLA Child's head notes. And, and I didn't really realize how much that affected me until I really started to think about, oh, yes, this is how I write recipes. I write recipes because I read this book from cover to cover, and I've used so many recipes that they're slipping out of, they're slipping out of its binding now um, because I want people to have the same sort of joy and um, an understanding of here you can make something delicious and you can make it beautiful. And if it doesn't come out perfectly, that's okay. You'll just keep on making it again. Um, and I've made so many of these recipes because I really understood the notes. And I think she's left us a treasure um, of helping to understand how to um, 
how to sh- how to continue to share recipes with others. I just feel like Julia would have the biggest smile on her face listening to that because I think you've you've hit on exactly what led her to her career, which was she felt for herself, she needed to understand the why of things to really learn it. And that that was exactly the intention she set out in in when she started that she wasn't seeing out there. And I think it's even captured in some upcoming stuff of argument she had with Simka, because Simka didn't initially go to that place. And Julia would work with her to be like, no, but why do you need to do it that way? You have to explain it. Otherwise, it just why would someone follow it? So that's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Todd. It has been such a joy and a pleasure. It is, again, it is a thrill um, to to be anywhere near the light of Julia Child. Um, she's had so much impact in the way that we work and the way that we cook. And, um, and it is so exciting to be part of it. Well, we're glad to uh, have you here and keep you coming back. So thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. It's good to have all of you back with us in 2022. If you want to hear more from Jamila, she's at Jamila Robinson on Twitter and Instagram. And you can go to inquirer.com and search Jamila Robinson to read some of her most recent reporting. Jamila is J-A-M-I-L-A. Stay up to date with us in 2022. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The next Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is May 20th to 22nd this year. You can go to sbce.events and sign up to be among the first to hear about the upcoming lineup of exciting in-person programming. We're making it happen, however it has, whatever format it has to be to be COVID-friendly. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkelb, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.